Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode is me and Bob answering patron emails. And we recorded the episode. And then afterwards, I thought, wow, we got into a lot of personal things. And usually when we do that, I like to limit the amount of people listening to it. And so I'm going to make this a patron only episode. So if you're a patron, you're going to hear this whole episode. If you're not, and you want to hear this whole episode along with hundreds of other episodes that are our best episodes, go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast, and you'll get access to this episode. In this episode, me and Bob answer patron and listener emails about trigger warnings, infidelity, weak therapists, couples therapy, and listening styles. And at the end, Bob and I really get into some, you know, some personal things. And so if you want to hear this episode and you're not a patron, go to patreon.com, become a patron today if you want. So, Bob, as usual, we have a long list of emails to read and respond to. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am Bob Gettle, a therapist in practice here in Seattle, seeing a lot of couples, and a fan of the podcast. I started listening to the deep dive on attachment theory and just finished the Bulby episode. Really good. Long episodes. I don't care about that. Really thorough and good I like that you're putting um, Bobby's um, theory in the context of his life or, you know, connecting them is better, be a better way to say it. Yeah. As I looked into, and I'm not the first person to do it, of course, but no. as I looked into it, I found that it definitely was interwoven in there and helped to contextualize the whole thing. And of all the different academic resources that I came across, none of them really told the story in a way like that. And mm-hmm. so uh, every once in a while, I don't know, maybe a couple of times since I made it, I'll listen back to that episode just to re-familiarize myself with it's John good. Bowlby and, and Attachment Theory. All right. So Anonymous Listener says, I wonder if you could discuss the use of the word trigger. I oh, am yeah. someone. I am someone that suffers from PTSD. I find I am irritated when I hear someone When I hear some people use the word trigger when they simply do not like something, hearing a sudden noise like a gunshot could render me physically unable to move. It is not an irritation. It is debilitating. I am not sure people completely understand this. Bob, what do you think? Well, I think the person has a really good point here in that words that you might use in one context can be um, invalidating. Like, like there's colloquial psychological stuff, like people toss around the word narcissism all the time, and they don't mean it in a clinical way, they mean it in a pejorative way. It's sort of a casual thing to say. And same with the word trigger. Now, to be honest, anonymous patron, I don't actually love that word either. And I'll tell you, I was sitting in a consult once with Marsha Linehan, and she says she don't care for the word trigger because what it means is that when the cue presents, the response is automatic. And since the point of therapy is to make the response go away, in other words, um, if loud noises are uh, a trigger for me, then um, ultimately my goal is to get it perhaps so that loud noises don't evoke my uh, PTSD symptoms. So she likes the word cue because a cue can happen. Cues happen all the time, but they either are um, effective in producing a response or ineffective. So, 
So I'm not a big fan. I use the word trigger because it's what's used colloquially. That's the way people talk about it. And the word cue is a little bit esoteric. But um, I, you know what? I you know Here's what I like about your email. I like that you're speaking up for yourself. And you're saying, hey, wait a minute. This I have a real experience here that's getting trivialized or it feels like it's getting trivialized. You're standing up for yourself. I can't help but think that perhaps directly or perhaps even indirectly, this is useful in your um, recovery. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think I can appreciate what Linehan is saying there for sure, especially when you're really trying to help people mm-hmm. to feel as though they have some control over their life mm-hmm. and really put them in the driver's seat mm-hmm. to instead of calling it a trigger, which is just something that happens and then there's this immediate uh, automatic response afterwards that – You have a cue for a response, and you're invited to try to change the way you respond to that cue. Uh, Having said that, uh, let me go into the different usages of the term trigger. Uh, There are two main usages that are in the society and within the clinical literature. I'm going to talk about the PTSD trigger, which the anonymous listener is referring to first here. So it is a... Trauma response trigger, as you described in your email, you hear a, a sudden noise like a gunshot and you it's a trigger and then it engages your PTSD response and you are physically unable to move. It's not just an irritation, it's debilitating. And this is the original use of the term trigger warning. Uh, we provide trigger warnings to people so that they can opt out if they have PTSD. If Mm -hmm. someone has been sexually assaulted and whenever they see a depiction of sexual assault, it, it, you know, let me just describe what happens to people with PTSD. It's not, you know, universal, of course, but a common response is you're watching a movie or in a movie theater and you didn't expect there to be a graphic depiction of a sexual assault. You're watching the movie boom, there's the scene, your body goes into total distress, your heart is racing, you become flooded with emotions, you can't think straight, you're in total panic mode, you might dissociate, you feel 100% unsafe, you can't uh, concentrate on anything, and no one can help you. You're completely alone trapped in your own trauma reactivity and you get up and you, you you manage to go to the bathroom you try to calm yourself down you come back in you feel ashamed you don't know what to do you manage to get home and you can't sleep at night and you're staring at the wall and you finally manage to fall asleep for a couple hours you wake up the next day to go to work and you're still in high distress and this state could last four weeks just because there was no trigger warning. Now, if there was a trigger warning at the beginning of the movie that said, uh, trigger warning, there's a depiction of a sexual assault that is graphic in this movie, people with PTSD know, oh, I know from experience, I need to not watch this movie, or I need to make sure I wait for that scene to happen and I just walk out of the theater. That's what trigger warning is. If you have been traumatized in war, and you sit down in a lecture hall and you know that you avoid watching war movies, you avoid avoid watching news stories about war depictions, 
you you know to avoid that. And you sit down in a lecture, and your class uh, teacher just decides randomly to show a depiction of Saving Private Ryan or something. And the professor just thinks, well, I, I'm just showing a, uh, it's a movie. It's a, it's a rated R movie, but all these people are above 17. I'm just going to show this movie. And that individual with war stress PTSD has the same reaction. It completely throws them off and their distress and maybe need for substances to calm them down will last for days, maybe weeks. Total suffering totally unnecessary and all you had to do was say by the way trigger warning i'm going to show uh, a clip from saving private ryan um, and i'll get more into the protocols of of trigger warnings that i actually developed a long time ago um but other kinds of triggers are as you said loud noises violence war stress death just seeing death if that's what your trauma was related to child abuse sexual assault animal cruelty Depictions of suicide, depictions of non-suicidal self-injury, depictions of eating disorder behavior, drug use, oppression, etc. So it's very important to uh, provide trigger warnings. So I made an episode in 2015, and I was getting so annoyed because it, it seemed like it was really prevalent then in the news. People were talking about how, like, oh, all these triggered college students, and there just seemed to be a lot of discussion of trigger warning. So I actually developed the following four principles or, you know, tenets, if you will, that people should follow when it comes to trigger warnings. Number one, if a presenter is planning on exposing individuals to graphic depictions or descriptions of common tra trauma triggers, such as child abuse, sexual assault, war stress, or traumatic death, then the individual or organization should adequately and reasonably inform with enough time to contemplate and react without consequences such as embarrassment or loss of course credit. So the keys here are adequate and reasonable information. So you provide adequate information prior and it's reasonable, meaning that you don't have to go on and on about what's about to happen, but you know enough information so that the audience knows what's coming. You also need to give enough time for the individuals with PTSD to think and react. You can't, as you're about to, sh you know, this will happen sometimes. People will say, oh, by the way, trigger warning, boom. Okay, it's, that's not, it's not helpful. And there has to be no consequences to the individuals for opting out. You're in a lecture hall, you're teaching a class, and you give adequate information, you give enough time for people to think and react, but uh, and and five people walk out of the of the lecture hall. If if they somehow miss out on information that's important for the test, then there is a consequence, right? Or embarrassment, which is probably the most important thing. So you don't want to spring, you don't want to tr provide a trigger warning when everyone's seated. You want to provide a trigger warning before people enter the room. That way, the people who are opting out just don't enter the room and it's less embarrassing. Number two is if someone is aware uh, that they have PTSD or that they can become triggered by something, then that individual is encouraged to advocate for themselves by informing presenters as necessary. In other words, it's a responsibility for the presenter. It's also a responsibility of the individual with PTSD to be proactive about things.
and not to just sit back and hope that everyone will do things for you. So sometimes you have to go to your professor and say, look, I have PTSD, I have war stress or whatever, and say, so I just let me know if there's ever anything that depicts this and that. Number three is, aside from trauma triggers, if the individual feels uncomfortable with a presentation, uh, so this is not trigger warning, this is just uncomfortable, this is just not liking something, like someone's giving a lecture on how to be a good Republican or something, and, and you don't like that presentation. That individual is free to communicate that to, to the presenter. You're free to stand up and say, I don't like this presentation. I don't like talking about Republicans. However, the individual is encouraged to consider carefully before invoking the term trigger warning, since overusage of this term potentially undermines the movement to protect individuals suffering from PTSD and trauma-related conditions. In other words, don't use the term trigger or trigger warning when you simply don't like something. It's fine not to like something. You can just say that. Number four, unqualified individuals in the media should refrain from providing uneducated commentary on trigger warnings and trauma-related conditions since this might further stigmatize trauma-related conditions, hamper efforts to reduce suffering, create a hostile environment for traumatized individuals, and potentially lead to triggered symptoms for traumatized individuals such as depression, anxiety, suicide, fearful rage, and drug abuse. In other words, don't talk about shit you don't know about. And stay away from PTSD non-clinicians. And don't talk about uh, how everyone's talking about trigger warnings these days. Trigger warnings are very important, and they're very necessary, and it's obvious. Um, so that's one usage of the term trigger warning. The other is... Uh, as you said, just not liking something. People, uh, you know, they're offended or nudity. Sometimes people say, I'm, you know, I was triggered by seeing nudity or I was triggered by seeing vomit or something. Now, nudity can be a trigger for PTSD. Seeing vomit can be a trigger for PTSD. But some people are just using the term to mean it was disgusting to them or they were they were cringing as they were watching it or something. So, you know, just just say that you don't like something or just say something is really gross. Or you could even say it triggered my disgust response <laughs> or something. But don't say trigger warning and don't say PTSD or anything like that unless that's what's really is happening. Uh, any thoughts on that, Bob? I appreciate what you're saying. I appreciate the... Um clinical uh no that's not the right way to put it the there's something healing in being proactive and taking care of oneself and i appreciate also what you're saying here about the difference between not liking something and being uh having a ptsd response to something there's cues everywhere everything is a cue you know like um smelling coffee is a cue for my mouth to water but it is not a trigger for my mouth to water it's that's a that's a specific term related to a specific difficulty that people who've gone through hell sometimes have. Right. All right. Listener Roxana from Georgia says, my spouse and I attended a few sessions of couples therapy because my husband cheated on me. Mm. I wanted my husband to be more transparent with me so we could rebuild trust. The counselor kept saying that you don't tell everything to your spouse. So we stopped going to that counselor. Do you agree with this concept, or was the counselor just not the one for us? Bob, what do you think? 
we can only respond to this based on what was written, so we don't really know the uh, the whole story. But okay, based on the story that you told, <coughs> um, pardon me. Um, I think that it isn't necessary to talk about the fact that each of us has um, a personal life that perhaps we don't share with anybody. I think it's unnecessary, and what it does is it undermines a sense of trust in the counselor and also in um, the potential for recovery from what is, in my opinion, one of the most awful things um, people can go through uh, in their relationship. And, of course, relationship being a greatest source of, in my opinion, a greatest source of strife. Uh, uh, strife, listen to me. The greatest source of distress, pain, difficulty, whatever, um, that humans can go through. So I think it's unnecessary to talk about that. It's not something I would talk about. Um, it's not something necessary to emphasize in any way. And I bet it scared the hell out of you. And yeah, maybe it was a good choice to find a different therapist. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to say because, as Bob is saying, we're not there. But, yeah, what Bob, I'll just reiterate was, what Bob was saying is that it sounds like it was some kind of relationship rupture that didn't make you feel good, regardless of the of, I don't know, viability of the perspective of the counselor. It sounds like you didn't feel understood. It fe- fe- feels like you felt like your efforts to rebuild trust that you believe to be non-pathological were kind of pathologized or at least rejected Mm -hmm. by the counselor and that didn't feel good. And of course you deserved to have that put out there into the room so that the therapist would be able to hear that. The larger issue regarding when you're in recovery from infidelity and there's this frequent compulsion by the cheated on partner to try to get as much information as possible, if not every tiny little detail. And there's a complicated line between uh, revealing things to build trust, which makes sense. Like usually like a common in every couple is different, but a common scenario would be, look, I need to know how many times you got together with this person. I need to know when it's, when it began, I need to know how you've ended it. What what was the conversation like exactly on the breakup? I need to know how much emotions you had toward that person. Was it just a minor thing or, or, or were you in love with that person? Uh, I need to know if this has happened with other people. It's not uncommon for that sort of information gathering to be helpful Uh, to just understand the landscape. Because often when you find out about infidelity, you just found out the tip of the iceberg, and usually there's a lot more. But there's a fine line between that and unhelpful interrogation, if you will, that can be done for a lot of different reasons. One is sometimes when you're terrified, you will focus on details as a solution to your terror. And that isn't necessarily the pathway to reducing your anxiety, that it's normal to be anxious, it's normal to worry, and sometimes you just have to live with that for a while until, that, until, you're, until the cheating partner proves over time, uh, maybe years, that they can be trusted. So it makes sense that you're trying to do something proactive in the moment 
to reduce your distrust, but sometimes you just have to let the cheating partner prove through time that you know they're not going to do things. The other reason why I think sometimes people engage in unhelpful interrogation is they want to punish the spouse by invading their world, essentially. Like, you, it, 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 parents will sometimes do this to kids. I don't know the wisdom of this, but they'll say, okay, you're going to tell me every single detail, kind of to rub their face in it in a certain sense. Also, when you do this, for whatever reason, you can actually traumatize yourself as the cheating on, as the cheated on partner by inserting a lot of images into your head. And you, you could essentially ruin your relationship by gathering those details and or you could literally cause trauma. I, I've had people that actually had legit PTSD from being exposed to the very fine details of the infidelity events. Uh, it's I'm trying to remember the, the specific stories, but there were... There was a woman who came across the text exchange hmm. very surprisingly. She, uh, his phone was sitting there, and and she saw the phone and somehow could open it up and was just like, "Oh, he left his phone. He went to work, or he went. To, he ran an errand, and he left his phone." And someone was texting him a lot, and so she's like, "Oh, maybe I should check that." And so she looks at it, and. Boom, 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 boom. Just like onslaught of realizations. And she's scrolling through all these texts between him and this other woman. And it causes massive fear and massive distress. And she had a panic attack and had full fight or flight reaction and had to be treated for PTSD. And I, and then she came to me later and I assessed her and she had full blown PTSD. And then I had to actually engage in PTSD treatment and uh, was able to reduce her symptoms to zero uh, because it was not ongoing traumas, you know, from the time you're five until you're 15. It was it was one event. It was difficult. But anyway, mm. so you just want to be careful about how much how many details you actually extract. But the key is, is that you work with your therapist that you trust along these lines, whatever decision you make. And sometimes what I tell couples is, all right, cheated on a partner, you're real, real focused and determined to get the nitty gritty of the details from the cheating partner. And you've decided, even though I've told you that there's a risk there, that you just cannot, you know, sort of move on until you know all the details. So you understand that this might hurt you. Yes, I understand this might hurt me, but I, I need to know. I need to know, like, I, I just feel like I really need to know. And then we turn to the cheating partner and we're just like, so you're just going to have to reveal it. <laughs> if, if you want to rebuild trust, this is the way. And this is the consequence. This is, this is what you have to live with as a cheating person because of what you did. It was deceitful, it was lying, and this is not only just, but it's also potentially going to really help. And the cheating partner always has a hard time, not with this so much, but any kind of, re you know, it, it never fails. And it drives me crazy every time because I'll sit down with the cheating partner and I'll say, okay, you've, you've come forward or you were caught 
let me tell you how you're going to get out of this. You know, do you want to get out of this? Yes. Do you want to rebuild trust? Yes. Do you love your spouse? Yes. Do you want to cheat again? No. Okay. So here's the way. You're going to have to not lie anymore. If you don't want to answer a question, just say you don't want to answer it. It's better to say, I don't want to answer that question than just making something up to deflect. Because nine times out of ten, we're going to eventually get there. It'll either be figured out or you'll come forward because it'll be eating you up on the inside. So do not lie. Either tell the truth or just say you don't want to answer the question. And I will walk them very carefully through this. Okay, cheated on partner, ask the question, how many times were you with this person? And then I'll turn before they before the cheating partner can respond, I'll turn to them and be like, so before you answer, really think about all the events. You know, maybe you categorize some events as like not actually having been with that person, but you know, be liberal about how you categorize. One, two, if you don't want to answer, so let's say it's 35 times-ish, and you don't want to reveal that right now because you're so ashamed, fine, just say you don't want to answer. Do not say five when it's 35, because eventually we're going to find out, and it's going to be even, uh, it'll be an additional uh, event of essential infidelity and deceit that you're going to have to spend even more years recovering from. So... Uh, and then they say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was seven. And then, you know, six months later, oh, yeah, it was it was more like 75 times. And there was three other people, you know. And it just, it, it just is so frustrating because I, I feel like I've learned from past, real, you know, treatment events. And I'll really try to lay out the red carpet, you know, and it's still just why I'm... Because, of course... Whatever personality or traumas led to the original deceit in the first place are still there, and they're still going to plague them as they're trying to tell the truth. Have you ever been down those roads, Bob? Oh, interesting question. Here's one thing I've noticed. <clears throat> now with the um, uh, electronics, people, um, you know, they have devices and generally we have locks on the devices. And anyways, I have my phone, Colleen has her phone, people have their own phone. And so there's um, um, electronic ways of cheating. And so what's the stance on electronic privacy? And here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that it seems to be both, it seems to be helpful to say, okay, you have access to my email, my phone, my tablet, my whatever, Right, you have access to my calendar. You have access to all that stuff. To just grant it, and um, so to me that makes sense. And then one of the things that I've noticed happens, at least for some people, is that looking at my partner's phone, if I'm the cheated on person, looking at my partner's phone is really provocative. Produces a tremendous amount of anxiety and shame, and. Um, ultimately is dissatisfying when I don't find anything. It's almost like I'd rather find something and go through that hell than not find something and then have to wonder because the more I find myself looking, the more scared and anxious I get. And then I don't find anything and I put it away and I'm just like left feeling like crap. Yeah. Because why? Why do you think that is? Because you can't prove a negative. 
Yeah. You can only find out what somebody did. You can't find out what anybody didn't do. But what problem are they trying to solve? They're trying to be safe. Yeah. I think. So, so I imagine... They're looking for safety in a minefield or something. Well, it can feel like a minefield, even if there's nothing to be found. Not finding something itself can be really painful and difficult. Yeah. And I kind of think of it as sort of like developmental stage. At first, I want to see everything. And then I discover that seeing everything doesn't really help me and actually makes me feel worse. And then it's like, I don't, I don't really, that's, it doesn't help me to look. So I, if my partner said, I'm not going to let you see my email, I think I'd just stay nervous. But when my partner says, okay, you can see everything. And I look and I look and I look, I go through this development where at first it's like anxious, anxious, anxious. What am I going to find? And ultimately it's like, well, this is painful. I haven't found anything. This doesn't help me feel better. I don't want to look anymore. I still want access, but I don't actually want to look. Yeah. Yeah. And the direction that I find people land on where it's a sustainable cruising speed is when the cheated on partner has a wave of anger or hurt, they acknowledge that to themselves, they express it, they cry, the cheating partner hears them and says, yeah, I'm sorry. Right. And I never should have done it. Right. And I, 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 it's understandable how you feel. Yeah. And when they rinse and repeat that sometimes thousands of times yeah. over the span of 25 years. Yeah. Then we're good. Then we're good. Patron Carrie from Texas says, Hi, Dr. Honda. I recently interviewed for a counselor position at a private practice. I am just starting out my career. The supervisor said within 20 minutes of the interview that she has reservations about me being a good couples therapist because she was, quote unquote, unsure if I could command the room. She said I seemed too weak for couples counseling and that I might have not enough presence to be a couples counselor. She also says she yells at her clients. I'm not sure we have the same counseling approach. <laughs> is there, <laughs> is this just a scare tactic to get counselors that are really committed to the private practice? Should I take a chance on a site where my supervisor doesn't have high hopes for me, but is willing to give me a chance? Bob, what do you think? Wow. Um, uh, what do I think? Okay, here's what I think. Don't work for them. Find a job somewhere else. That's what I think. Based on what you wrote, that's what I really think. Why? Um, well, because your supervisor is telling you who she is. She's telling you what you can reasonably expect. You, she expects you to command a room, and she expects you to use aggression to do so. And that's what she thinks is helpful or what works for her, whatever. I don't know. It's not something I, I don't... It's not something I think is a really good idea. So go find a job somewhere else. You know, I mean, is it the only private practice in town? If it, if you have to lump it, if it's the only job that it, there is to be found, then yeah, maybe you should take it so that at least you can be do something. But but if you don't have to, why bother? That's what well, I really think. Do you think that couples counselors need to have presence and not be weak and uh, command a room? I don't know what command a room means. I notice that when I do couples counseling, I'm very active. And at the end of the day, I'm very tired because I was working pretty hard. 
um, I have to be willing to interrupt and slow things down with people who, you know, their impulses are to just speed up and, you know, maybe sort of get into that attack defend thing. I do have to be willing to interrupt that. Um, I don't know that I need to yell. Yeah. I don't think I need to yell. Have you ever yelled at a couple? Yeah. Was it a good idea? No. Oh. I've yelled at couples in my early career, and I don't know what I would think if I saw the video, but I think it was justified at the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They were very volatile, and I was trying to get them to be helpful in session. Yeah. And I raised my voice. Yeah. Um, But yeah, this idea, Carrie, from Texas, that uh, you, as a couples therapist need to command a room, as Bob is saying, is, you know, probably justified. But having said that, I've trained hundreds of couples therapists uh, over 25 years, and some have, quote-unquote, presence and command, and some don't. And I haven't seen a difference in effectiveness or how much clients like them. It's just a matter of style. Yeah. Also, presence can be learned, you know, command of our room can be oh, learned. It's not yeah. a it's not a personality trait that you don't have command of a room. It sounds like a job for supervision. And as Bob is saying, if your supervisor is already saying you don't have what it takes, then I I wouldn't want to work with a supervisor like that Mm-mm. if I had a choice. So uh, so there's that. But yeah, generally speaking, I, I would say that. You're better off at least learning it. So I guess it goes both both ways. If you are a non-aggressive, non-commanding sort of therapist and with your individual clients that can work fine, then you probably could do yourself and your clients some good by uh, learning how to take command. Now, the way you do this is you have a mentor who actually teaches you how to do this, you know, in very minute detailed sort of ways because it's a very complicated thing so uh, and if you are a person who tends to be very commanding as a therapist you could do with learning how to sit back and to allow clients to meander a little bit and not necessarily have to jump in at every single moment so I, I think it's just a matter of flexibility repertoire and knowing when to apply what. And every therapist, particularly couples therapists, should, should have you know, a, a good amount of flexibility on that spectrum from command to relaxed, if you will. All right, Bob. So upper tier patrons who are at the top level Ooh. can give a shout out on the podcast. And so we have upper tier patron Shannon, who wanted me to read this about her son. I want to give a shout out to my five-year-old son. His name is Xander. He and I are different in the same way. What's really cool about this is that I adopted Xander at birth. So Mm -hmm. it is just coincidence we are different in the same way. He loves monsters and dinosaurs and Godzilla and any big powerful being. He also loves fan content and making videos for YouTube. Oh, interesting. Five-year-old. He likes making videos for YouTube. He could use some encouragement for remote kindergarten, and he would love a shout-out 
about making YouTube videos like you do? Well, Xander, son of Shannon, different in the same way. I think it's fantastic that you are creative and that you are uh, interested in big things like monsters. I mean, who doesn't like monsters and dinosaurs and Godzilla and big, powerful beings? King Kong, you got your, uh, what do they call those? <laughs> um, those giant uh, robot things. <laughs> Transformers? Uh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. right, those. But I had a, there's a different word. Anyway, it's a Japanese word that I should know. Anyway, mm-hmm. point is, is Shannon and Xander, you sound like a fun duo, mother-son duo, and I just... Th- can I can just picture your life in, in my mind. And, yeah, bummer that you have remote kindergarten. I mean, I can't imagine a worse grade to be remote than kindergarten because if you've ever observed kindergarten, you're up, you're, you're walking around, you're singing and clapping, you're touching your toes and your elbows and your head and you're high-fiving people and you're playing with toys and you're running around at recess. There's not a lot of, you know, I'm a professor of graduate school and we just sit and talk and talk and talk. (laughs) That's all we do. (laughs) And uh, so I feel bad for you, Xander, but soon, soon, my friend, maybe first grade, (laughs) you will not have to deal with that anymore. And... So everyone out there, make sure you get vaccinated. All right. Patron Megan from Yelm. Good old Yelm. Have you been to Yelm before, Bob? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yelm is just on the other side of the mountains. Oh, listen, my Seattle geog- my Washington State geography sucks. So I've been there, but I don't know where it is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like mountainy, is it, is it not? Yelm. Gosh darn it. Now I have to look it up. <laughs> Yelm, Washington. It is, uh, let's see, it's, um, oh, no, no, <laughs> duh. I'm thinking of Cleelum, sorry. Oh, yeah. Cleelum yeah. is uh, near Olympia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's near Nisqually and all those areas. Some yeah. water, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, right, beautiful area, mm-hmm. uh, very memorable. Uh, patron Megan from Yelm, I have a question for you and Bob. Why is there sometimes a strong reaction when I mention that I'm in school to become a therapist? I've had healthcare providers I work with tell me it's a wannabe science. Other people try to get into a discussion with me on how much they know about psychology without having to go to school and that my schooling is a waste of time. The worst case scenario also happened and I lost a friend of six years over it. Uh, towards the end of our relationship, she tried to tell me that psychology is very limiting. It seems as though there's hostility towards the field that I didn't expect. What do you think that is, Bob? Have you ever experienced that? And why do people do that? No, I haven't experienced that. doesn't mean that it doesn't happen a lot. I don't know how much it happens. Um, I, apparently, people have egos and opinions, and feel free to share them. Um, <laughs> yeah, turns out I, people have opinions. Yeah. I don't need to sweat it too much. I'm sorry about your friend. Um, Sounds like, I don't know, maybe she was flipping you off as she left the room kind of thing. You know, psychology's stupid. Um, Maybe people feel threatened and intimidated. You know, what I'm reminded of is when um, Colleen and I, Colleen and I met on Match.com 
And um, one of the great things about Colleen is she didn't want to trade 9 million emails before we met because it's like you got to get in a room with somebody. But she did ask me uh, before we met, why would you become a therapist? To which I responded, effed up childhood. And she said to me, when I found out you were a therapist, I'm like, oh, crap, he's going to psychoanalyze me. He's going to get in my head. He's going to find out this, that, or the other. And when he wrote back and he said, effed up childhood, I thought, oh, regular human. So when I listened to this email, I think about her and I think about that. And I think about Marshall Rosenberg, who is the nonviolent communication guy, who basically doesn't meet force with force. He meets force with interest in validation, even when it's painful to him. Um, so, so you might consider that if you, if it's important to you to be able to respond to these people who have these opinions, or you might just not talk to them or change the subject or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have, to you, be, have you run into this? Yeah, absolutely. I'm surprised you have it. I mean, I ran into it more in my early career and also when I step outside Seattle, cause it's like, Every third person in Seattle is a therapist. So, all my friends are therapists, and I never leave town. <laughs> yeah. So I I don't. Uh, but I imagine if you're in another part of the country yeah, or the okay. world, all right? Fair enough. Uh, then for sure. And also, everyone in my life and your life too, Bob, has adjusted. When I first came out of the closet, yeah. if you will, and said, you know, I'm thinking about becoming a therapist, right? I had a lot of reactivity in that moment because I had told no one that I wanted to be a therapist prior to that. So they had to suddenly wrestle with their vision of me and my life and my career. And, you know, you, you'll get some reactions. But, you know, after 25 years, everyone's just like, oh, yeah, Kirk's a therapist, right. whatever. You know what I mean? And I've realized that him being a therapist isn't a threat. Right. It hasn't harmed me that he's a therapist. He's still a regular human being. So some speculations, a, a patron, Megan from Yelm, which is definitely not near the mountains and definitely near Olympia. Um, I've experienced this as well. And some speculate, you ask, you know, why do people do this? Well, here, here's my speculations. Number one is misinformation. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Tom Cruise saying that psychiatry is a quack field you know, on and on and on. There's just so much misinformation and people talking about our field as if they know what's happening and they clearly don't, mainly because of media and TVs and movies depicting us in these really just awful, <laughs> awful ways. Number two is, uh, you know, you say, someone said that it's a wannabe science. Well, I agree. I mean, I, it is kind of a wannabe science. Certainly, it's a large field psychology and there are certain hard science things that we can point to for sure. But a lot of psychology and particularly psychotherapy is soft science and or philosophy. There was a movement uh, decades ago that, you know, with William James and, and I guess Freud to some extent that didn't necessarily want psychology and psychotherapy and psychoanalysis to be considered a hard science like physics or chemistry. Because we're talking about humans and behavior and meaning, and it's hard to quantify those things. And when you try to quantify those things, then you miss the heart of the matter. So it'd be like trying to change religion into a science or something, 
or the study of the meaning of life into a into a science. And so, yeah, it is a one. And there are a lot of people in our field who really, really want to make it into a hard science because as a society, we privilege hard sciences, which for whatever reason, and anything that is a soft science or philosophy is just like twiddling your thumbs, which is one of the most ignorant things. Anyone who understands philosophy, you know, really understands philosophy, understands that we're all, you know, philosophers. We all have a philosophy. We all exist within a philosophy. Our lives are completely dictated by logic and how and meaning and how we piece things together. And psychotherapy can get into that stuff. I mean, it it's a wonderful thing to make it a hard science would take away ninety nine percent of what I do as a, as a therapist. Anyway, number three, uh, people have been harmed by clinicians in their past, and so they're going to have a negative point of view about clinicians because they were harmed. I had a dental assistant. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating in this context. Uh, I don't know. This is four or five years ago, maybe. I go to my dentist, of whom I went to all the time, but there's a new dental assistant. You know, there's different. I don't know the different terms, but you have the dentist, the main person that comes in at the end, and then you have the person who cleans your teeth, and that's a hygienist, I believe, right? Yeah, I think so. And then you have the assistant who never puts things in your mouth, but they get you seated, and maybe they'll do the x-rays. I don't know. So this dental assistant, and she seemed pretty young. She seemed maybe like she was 19 or something. I don't know. It's really young. She's, she gets <laughs> You're me. getting old. <laughs> Everybody she, seems young. Yeah. She gets me into the chair, and she has that normal banter that they always are encouraged to do. I'm pretty sure whoever owns the business is like, you know, make sure you make people feel comfortable. Make, you know, make it a... Make it a homey place, strike up conversation, and she's doing it, and she's terrible at it. She just says, no. And so I'm just appeasing her. She's like, so, what are you doing today? And I can tell she doesn't care, and, I, and I'm like, you know, okay, I'll answer these questions, but I know you don't care. And then she, <laughs> and then she says, uh, so, are you working today? You know, it's a real common thing on a yeah. Monday through Friday. Yeah, so, are you working today? I'm like, yep. And, and she's like, oh, where do you work? And I, I say, well, I work across the street at the university. And she's like, "Oh, you do?" And she, yeah. Uh, what do you teach? Or what are you, um, professor? What do you What do you teach? I was, uh, I teach marriage and family therapy, you know, psychology. And she's like, stops in her tracks. Therapists are charlatans. She didn't use that word because I don't think she was sophisticated enough. But she essentially used some word along those lines of like they're all scam artists. And wow, um, all therapists are trying to do is get money, and they don't care about you. And it's it's a total scam. The entire industry of psychology and therapy is a total scam. And she just launches into this. And I'm sitting there in the chair listening to her, you know, completely denigrate my entire field, all my students, oh my God. including all my clients. And I'm laughing on the inside because, you know, I, I don't care. You can think that. It doesn't change things you know, for a 19 year old dental assistant to believe such a thing. And, and I just said, uh, I said, huh, you know, I, and I wasn't going to defend anything cause no. there wasn't really. So I was just like, oh, okay. And then I think she realized about, I don't know, a few minutes into her tirade, <laughs> what she, what was happening. And she kind of stopped for a second. She's like, yeah, well, you know, I had this family therapist that worked with my family and, you know, it was a really terrible experience for me or something like that. And I instantly filled in the space between the lines of 
defiant teenager, trauma in the family, family therapist comes in, tries to help. It's a tall order, probably a short stint of therapy. Uh, maybe it got her hopes up and nothing changed, and uh, now she hates all therapists, you know? And uh, so you just never know the amount of difficulty people have had with clinicians in the past, and, of course, that's going to affect things. Were you worried about her um, capacity to work on your teeth with that feeling towards you? <laughs> It's like you're gonna put shit in my mouth. I I don't know. I don't know. Is, can you can you do it? Can can you can you work on my teeth without? <laughs> yeah, it was transference. God, I mean, it was just such a funny you know interaction. I actually for a split second thought I was on candid camera because I I thought <laughs> there there's no way that this person is for real. I mean. It'd be one thing to be a little prickly. It's another thing to go on a long tirade about how my entire, about essentially me, that I'm a scam artist right. that doesn't care about people. Like, right. Anyway, number four reason why people would react negatively towards you becoming a counselor is narcissism. You know, there are some people who, you, you were mentioning people who, you know, believe that they don't need to go to school because, you know, they, they know a bunch about psychology already. Um, and believe me, you do not know about how to be a clinician. You need to go to graduate school. Having said that, yeah, I know some non-clinicians who are excellent helpers or yeah. uh, some of you listening right now, if you've listened to the podcast for, uh, you know, years, you have probably received a fair amount of education that it gives you information at par or even you know beyond mm. many many clinicians it doesn't mm. mean that you don't have the fundamentals <laughs> it doesn't mean that you have the fundamentals to become a therapist of course and definitely don't have the credentials but but anyway there there's a lot of people out there that are just like they're threatened by well and that brings me to number 5 is that a lot of people are threatened yeah when you mention psychology and that you're going to go into that field right a lot of people have had relational traumas, and that causes them to develop defenses. And when you introduce this notion of psychology or you know the broader topic into the conversation, they get scared and they attack. And I, I've experienced this, particularly early on when I was first going to graduate school with some of my friends. I would be learning something, and I'd share it with my friends. And I just remember one of my friends just completely was aggressive with me and just shut me down. Just like, shut up. I don't want to hear about that shit. And I was just like, what in the world? And I you know, figure later that he just has tremendous traumas, and he keeps them under a very, very thick uh, blanket, if you will, <laughs> And by me just bringing up the topic of psychology threatens his defense of keeping everything suppressed. And that was very scary. And his way of dealing with that is to attack. And so you're going to run into that as well. It's unfortunate, but understandable. Um, patron Heather from Vermont says, what has been your experience with conceptualizing people who are in a conversation? Uh these people seem like they aren't listening. They bring conversations back to themselves or talk over you. You think, there's no way they heard anything that I said, but later they can remember details of conversations. Bob, what do you think of people who bring conversations back to themselves or talk over you, but it seems like they might be listening? 
I don't know what to think about this. The first part sounds like my dad. Uh, that was something that happened with him frequently. He brought conversations back to him and would relate to me, but only in terms of his own experience. And so I think um, we had, I don't think this, we had dissatisfying conversations about most things um, because he 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 couldn't step outside himself. Did I ever tell you, I know this is a bit of a tangent, did I ever tell you his last words to me? I think so, but tell yeah. me again. Well, he was he was sick, and it was starting to affect his speech, and so he his speech was garbled, like when you're really drunk. Mm. But he wasn't drunk; he wasn't even high on drugs. He was just it was affecting his um, motor motor skill, and he he couldn't talk. And he said to me, "Bobby, you talk; I'll listen." Now I've been waiting for that for all my life. Mm. Right, so it was really meaningful to me, but it was also quite a tall order because the dynamic in our relationship has always been I talk very little, and he fills the space and um so to have to reverse that was a bit much for me. One of the interesting things that happened after he passed was my brother called me up. My brother is my brother's one tough man he is he's very strong, resourceful, and your older brother uh, no, this is Danny, my younger, yeah. And he called me up after our father passed. And Danny isn't one to um, ask for much. He doesn't ask for much. Um, um, but he called me up and he's like, Bob, he he said that. He said, he said to me, you talk, Danny, and I'll listen. And I found myself getting off the phone. And I said to him, look, yeah, you can't actually, you know, his experience of our father was similar to mine in that um, there wasn't uh um see it's hard for me to know how to put this there wasn't uh, a reciprocity or mutuality in it it was really about my dad and actually for months it had been about my dad almost exclusively because my brother was managing his health care which meant interfacing with eight different specialist doctors who weren't talking to each other so he's juggling a lot of balls there and then out of nowhere my dad says you talk danny and i'll listen and he doesn't know what to do. So he says to me, I said a couple of things about what's going on with my kids. And then I got off the phone and I feel terrible about it. And I'm like, you know, Dan, you're not going to be able to reverse that. It's years of. And then I said to him, you know, to be honest with you, when he said that to me, it was like music because I've been wanting that my whole life, you know, for him to actually really take an interest in me and not bring it back to him. And oh, so I guess coming back around to what the person is saying, sounds like she's she or he is unhappy with the way the conversation goes and gets turned around. But perhaps, this is a guess, but perhaps feels as though they have to go along with that, that they can't interrupt it, that they can't find a way to say, oh, I really value your attention and I'm not getting it. That's something I could never do. And it's something I would have a very hard time doing now because it's a very vulnerable thing. The minute you say the words I want is the minute you let yourself be subject to the possibility of no. The answer uh -huh. is no, which uh -huh. can feel awful. So I want, to me, are like two of the most vulnerable words than the, anybody could ever utter. Um, and I just get the feeling, and it's just a guess, I don't know, that the person perhaps feels as though they can't interrupt or let the other person know how much their attention matters or is valued and um, how much they wish for, you know, the focus to be on them sometimes or, or, or this time or whatever. It'd be kind of, I don't know. I wonder what's possible. Like real intimacy is possible. 
I couldn't it's fine you know it's funny uh, talking on the podcast is a little bit about a little bit like the way I conduct therapy with my clients and one of the things that I've learned early on is do not model failure don't model failure. You need to present um, possibility and hope to people. So don't model failure. Don't model your own limitation. And and here I am about to model it, which is I never said that to my dad. I was too scared. And I never said it to my mother. She's still living. Um, and I don't know that I will. Uh, that's really, really vulnerable to me. It's really vulnerable to me to ask for anybody's attention, even Colleen's. Um, and when I have done it, she's been, oh, so lovely. But <laughs> my heart rate goes up and I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. You know, it's like it's like danger. So I, de- I generally don't um, ask for that. But I I can say as double standardy as it might sound that I believe it is okay to do that. And I hope that this person does. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I think what it does is it jump it jumps the train off the track onto a better track when Mm. because i've seen a lot of interaction i've been in a lot of interactions where there's just something scaring the two people in the conversation yeah they're afraid of rejection they're afraid of being judged they're afraid that they're not interesting or they're or they're afraid they're being narcissistic or whatever it is and there's just a lot of fear and the way that it works out systemically is the the overtalker will try to compensate by overtalking, yeah. And the undertalker will try to compensate by undertalking. Yep. Both people are now feeling afraid and hurt and rejected, and they're both kind of running scared, and they're opposite but mutually, you know, supporting directions. <laughs> and then if you jump the tracks by saying, "Look." I just want to say I got stuff to say. You know, I want to I want to say some things, and um, I'm afraid that if I say I got things to say, and I want you to validate it or whatever, that you are going to uh, not hear me. But I don't have any reason to really believe that. I, I, I it's just a general fear that I have about people having that kind of authenticity gives the opportunity for uh, the run aware to stop, and which will cause the run you know the overtalker to to now be less anxious oh you know i'm i'm now in contact with someone Mm. and you know and i've been there before i i have a extended family member who is like this that the first i don't know 10 times i interacted with her i just found myself slowly wanting to like disappear as she just talked and talked and talked and talked and it wasn't until i sort of thought about it. It's like, you know what I think is happening is, yeah, she talks a lot, but I get angry. I get hurt and angry at her. And so I withdraw. And then I think she feels like she has to fill the space. Yeah. And so my response isn't helping. And so from that point forward, you know, it was effort. It was kind of laborious at times, but I, I just said, if you're going to interact with her, make it short and talk and interrupt and she doesn't mind. You know, she she didn't if I interrupted her, she didn't mind. She wasn't like, oh, "You're interrupting me." She she was like, "Oh, someone's someone's interacting with me." <laughs> How, you know, that's good. I like that, you know. And so, um so you ask patron Heather from Vermont, you know, what's going on here? Well, there are two two categories that I think of. One is that there's a personality issue that impairs 
the person's empathy that impairs the the person's ability to care or know that you exist and certainly bob's father was like this he had a he had his own traumas in his history that made it so it was hard for him to have the maturity to know that other people matter you know when you're 5 you know other people kind of matter but not really matter and that's okay when you're 5 you should be allowed to be very self-focused and and not necessarily responsible for other people's feelings but if you're arrested that way in your development and you stay at that level and you're 60 years old and you, and you have kids then you're going to make your kids feel very hurt because uh you know i don't know is this an accurate uh yeah description yes yeah so uh, it's possible patron heather that you're running into someone like that it's also possible that they're just immature uh, there's various different vectors to immaturity that can lead to some people just not being very attentive to other people's feelings. When when you talk to a fifth grader and they tell you about a TV show they recently watched, they can yammer and yammer and yammer and in a way that you don't even really are tracking what they're saying. But the fact is they don't care. <laughs> they just want to relive the moment in their mind and they want someone to pay attention to them. And they're not interested in you, uh, you know, understanding or comprehending. They're not interested in your thoughts. They're, they just want to be on stage and they want you to pay attention. And that's the stage they're in. They, you know, they want to get good at telling stories and and garnering attention, you know, and, and keeping someone's interest. It's only they, later that they learn. And I also want to <laughs> provide other people with validation at the same time. Hey, that Bulby thing. Remember, Bulby says you're not going to spoil your kid if you give him between what ages zero and two. If right. you give your kid, you're responsive to your kid. You're not going to spoil him. Actually, you make them more emotionally resilient. I wonder if a fifth grader who gets that kind of attention, it's not that. Oh, if I give you attention, you're going to be, <clears throat> pardon me, this attention hog. Maybe the attention will help a kid move through that developmental phase to where they. Um, learn reciprocity, but they have to be on stage before they can learn that other people like being on stage too. Hundred uh, percent. I don't know if Piaget mentioned this, but I found that a lot of fifth graders are like this, and the task uh, is: Can I use my verbal skills to keep someone's attention? Because I see people using their verbal skills to keep my attention. I see people using their verbal skills to, to keep other people's attention. Can I command that kind of power through words? And later, after they establish, yes, I can, then they can say, am I saying anything that matters to anybody? Because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know uh, anyway, so uh, it could be that could be anxiety like i talked about yeah. before someone could just be terrified of what's happening socially and so they just talk and talk and talk and talk um or they could be coming from a place of traumas where they just assume that they're unsafe and that people don't like them and they're in a constant state of trying to impress other people i've run into that before and then of course lack of modeling if you just didn't have a yeah. good model to follow of people right. who do sort of back and forth conversation style so so these are all in the category of there's something different about the person's personality due to 
either arrested development or trauma that results in them having a real hard time listening. They're going to bring conversations back to them. They're going to talk over you. Uh, you're going to feel rejected. You're going to feel bad. You're going to feel like they don't, they're not really listening, even though they kind of are. The other category of analysis is conversation style. And actually, this is perfect because me and Bob actually have talked about this before. I don't know if you remember this, Bob, huh. but it seems like you don't, is that I've discovered there are two types of people. And, and you and I are uh, different types. Are we complementary? Yeah. So yeah. you have the listeners who wait and the listeners who relate. So this is uh, my language. And I just came up with it this morning. So nice. Bob is a listener who waits. These are people who listen and they wait for you to ask. They will not offer their own story until you ask for it for a variety of reasons. Uh, mm -hmm. One is just like, they might consider it impolite to actually change the focus to themselves or they're unsure if you care. And so they're like, well, I'm not going to offer up my story unless someone asks for it because who, who am I to sort of impose my story on someone? And it's fine. It, this isn't a, a place of trauma. It's just a, it's just a kind of a, an assumption about how conversations are supposed to go. And uh, if you get two people who are like this together, listeners who wait, they'll tend to ask questions of each other and elicit stories from each other such that each person gets to say what they want to say. The other type of person are listeners who relate. And this is mostly me, although I, I'm a little bit of a listener who waits. Birdo is definitely a listener who relates. And these people are listening, but they validate by telling a story of their own. And they feel as though they're helping by telling a story, by, by bringing it to them, because it, to them, one of the best ways you can validate someone's experience is to say, look, I get it. Let me prove to you that I get it. Here is a story from my life that is similar to yours. I get you. But there's very little overt uh, communication around validation and I get you. So you get the listener who mm. waits matched up with a listener who relates together and they will piss each other off. The the Ooh. listeners the, the me's of the world will bother the bobs of the world because it'll seem as though I'm not listening and I'm just I'm using your story to tell my story, but I'm doing it because I I want to relate. Now there is a tinge of narcissism in there for sure, but at the same time when I get together with Berto, for example, and he he never or he, he he validates some, but he definitely will bounce off stories and tell his own story. I appreciate that, and you do that sometimes too, Bob. Particularly when we're on the podcast, because mm -hmm. I think it's expected of you. <laughs> and yeah. Years ago, I said, Bob, you got to talk more, man. This is a podcast. Like, uh, I get that you're a listener, but um, this whole thing depends on you yammering. So, you know, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> um, you said that to me for months. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you got to talk more, buddy. You got to, you got to say things. And so, um, and for, uh, me, the, the me's and the birdos of the world, um, I actually, my aunt is, is like you too, Bob, mm -hmm. where she will ask lots of questions. And if you don't, if I don't watch it, 
the whole conversation, 45 minutes, will be her asking me questions and me answering them. And I have to remember, oh, she's a listener who waits. And so I have to ask her a question to get her to say something about herself. Because if someone asked uh, me a question, so if Berto asks me a question and I answer it like, oh, you know, here's how my week has been. Berto will just say how his week is going too. He'll just he'll just launch into that. And so it releases me. That's another thing that telling your own story does is it releases the other person from having to ask. You, mm-hmm. You're just sort of predicting what the other person might want to hear or something, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're just different styles. Bob, do you remember us talking about this in the past? I do not remember this at all. But I, but, but rather than that, I, what I'm interested in is what is the impact of you being in a relationship with me as a person who waits I feel guilty uh, sometimes. I'll say I feel guilty almost every time you and I talk. So we will, but it's a slight and it's not debilitating, but almost every time you and I talk, there's a, there's a little bit of guilt, like shit, like I should have asked more questions because, you know, I'm a talker and if I'm with Birdo, he'll fill the space and then I don't feel, I don't feel like I failed somehow. You know what I mean? And uh, so it stretches my sort of attention and I have to remember, okay, make sure you stop, slow down and ask him a question because that's the only way that he's going to say anything because he doesn't want to make it about him. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a slight guilt, like I said. It doesn't. Okay, you're doesn't, not going to lose sleep. I get it. But, <laughs> um, but you know, it. Yeah, I mean, it, it. It's not a pleasant feeling, but you know, on the scale of things, it's like a two. And I tr- I guess part of it is, I trust the the on the good side. I trust that you don't dislike me. You know oh, what I, mean? I really enjoy you. I really love you. You're my friend forever. And no, I like listening to you. Uh, you know what? I'll, okay, all candor here. Mm-hmm. I probably do get about a two. Are we talking on a scale of zero to 10? Yeah. Yeah, okay, good. It's not like zero to five or zero to two. <laughs> right. But I probably do get a little bit irritated at times. Yeah. Um, but I I find this so fascinating that you get a little bit guilty. I feel quite sad right now, actually. Um, um, you know, like we're two guys who are sincere and earnest and care about one another and we're just making our way and I have my habits. You know, I am a listener who waits and you have your habits. You're a listener who relates. And um, there's a perhaps a natural tension that comes up that has zero to do with what you mean to me or what I mean to you. Right. But But just asserts itself and puts uh, perhaps some wrinkles. But but also, maybe maybe tennis without a net would be really dull. Because maybe what happens is then you and me get a chance to actually focus on what is our experience of one another. And I don't, quite frankly, I don't do that with anybody except my therapist and my wife. You're the only person I ever talk to about anything that's uh, personal. Mm-hmm. And the only person where there's enough of you and me both showing up and taking risk with one another that we actually can say these things. I had no idea you feel guilty. I I'm, I make sense. I mean, I, I get I get it. 
Um, but it's not something I would have ever guessed. And I think that's because, well, it's not, I think. I'm myopic and I just see the world from my own point of view. But you wake me up a little bit, which I appreciate, even though it's also a little bit painful. Yeah. And I know we've talked about this before because... Well, I'm just not remembering. Yeah. Uh, and because I remember t telling you I talked about you and me in my systems class. This would have been like 15 years ago. Because yeah. this, is, this is... You and I have had this dynamic since the beginning, you know? <laughs> of Because yeah. uh, in some ways, you're deceptively a talker at times. And... Because you know, after there, a couple of drinks, <laughs> yeah, there are some people who are real quiet, you know, mm -hmm. and really reserved. And mm -hmm. with you, it's like there are times when you're definitely a, a talker, and there are times when I find myself just sort of on cruising conversation speed, and I'll suddenly realize, and I like I said, this happens maybe every time I talk to you. At some point, I'll go, oh, my God, I've been yammering for how long now? <laughs> and I can, you know, and I can sort of tell by the look in your eye that, you know, you're interested, but you're not that interested, you know. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then I, I freak out, you know, and, it, and I feel guilty. Oh, God, mm. you're doing it again. But like with, with, with Birdo, yeah. I never feel that way. But I feel the opposite. I feel like you when I'm with Birdo sometimes because like I'm more towards oh, you than towards yeah, Birdo. And right. so sometimes, you know, I'm the one staring at him going, okay, get on with it. Mm. And irritated that he doesn't seem to be very interested in, you know, me or something mm -hmm. in a genuine, mm -hmm. authentic way. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, you know, I, it sucks to make each other feel bad. <laughs> it just... Maybe it's just un, um, an unfortunate quirk about being alive and being in connection. Yeah. Maybe maybe these two types, they have this particular dynamic. The, the other f three combinations, you, you know, two different, you get what I mean. Yeah. The two by two scale or two by two square. Two relators, um, two relators and a weight and relator. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. That exactly. So those are their own dynamics. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you're saying this, though, because as a listener who waits, which, by the way, I think I might steal this from you, um, I I live with a person who's a listener who relates, mm. and I'm vulnerable to interpreting her as being the flavor of narcissism as my dad, and yet Colleen it really isn't. She isn't at all like my father. Um, I used to think that she, maybe she was, like, you know, they say you marry your parent. I used to say... I didn't marry my mother. I married my father. But she actually isn't like that. She is a listener who relates. And I really like the idea of seeing her as a person who wants to connect with me and is doing so through this particular means as opposed to a person who doesn't give a shit what I think and just wants airspace, like the fifth grader who wants to be on stage. She's not like that. And lately, you're giving me language to put some... Put, to something that I've been more and more attuned with as it unfolds is um, a kinder, more attuned way of understanding her as opposed to the defensive way that I sometimes get. And by yeah. sometimes, I mean most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, so there's pros and cons and considerations mm -hmm. of each type. So the listeners who relate 
like myself yeah. need to occasionally check in with themselves and say, are you yammering? And should you ask a question of the other person? You know, it's almost, I don't know if it's a Japanese thing, but I find that a lot of my Japanese relatives are like this, where it's almost impolite to ask really personal questions of another person, or even wow. just even just mildly personal, like, uh, tell me how your job is going. Like, it, it's it's too forward, you know, yeah. it's, it's too in your face. Yeah. You know, it's like walking up to someone in a restaurant, you know, you don't know very well, and you're just like, tell me about the last time you fell in love. Yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> it, 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 for certain cultural groups, just asking questions of another person, it, it has that kind of feel to it. And I, I right. think I definitely have that. Now, at the same time, I've hated that about the way the world is or the way my culture is. And I've, and a big reason why I was attracted to becoming a therapist is because I get paid to ask those weird questions. I can, I can, I have permission to just ask, like, tell me about your sexual life. You know, we never talked about that. Yeah. You know, that's, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm, I'm relating. (laughs) (laughs) No, I actually wanted to ask you a question. Did you know that when you decided you wanted to change from what you were doing to being a therapist? Did you know that what you wanted was that kind of contact? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. And because... Well, just marvelously, beautifully, narcissistically, wonderfully selfish. <laughs> what a great reason to be a therapist. I want contact. Because what do yeah. people show up in your office for? They yeah. show up largely for contact. Yeah. And all wow. That. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. You, you didn't have that? Desire. Nah. That, nah. Wasn't, that wasn't. Yeah, I mean, before I was a therapist, I was known for at parties getting into the, some very deep conversations with people. Oh, that's so you. Yeah, I don't think you're any different. Yeah, you just I, sort of just now I'm a professional. Like, yeah. they, like I would. I, there'd be, you know, I'd start up normally you're at a party to sort of talk about random things, but I was I liked saying, you know what, I don't want to do the normal party small talk. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to some interesting questions here and, and I wouldn't and I would do it in a way that wouldn't put people off. And no. I would I would ask I figured out that if you just asked a question in an uncomplicated way, people answered. Because people want that contact. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And so I remember, you know, I would be at a party and there'd be in this kind of deep conversation and then like someone would come over, maybe you even and you'd be like, my God, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I realized this a long time ago. Um, I don't know if you remember my friend Stu. Do you remember him? I don't know if you remember him, but he was, he was a close friend a, a number of years ago. And he was definitely a listener who related. And him and I could talk and talk and talk, and we would never ask the other person a question. It was like two people narcissistically sharing and it there it didn't seem connected but i felt very close to him and i felt understood by him and i'm pretty sure he felt understood by me and people would watch us talk and they'd be like you guys never ask each other questions and i I remember thinking about this would have been i don't know 20 years ago or something and i i remember thinking well why don't i feel bad about that and what and I knew that he would make other people feel bad by the way he yammered, you know, 
And I was like, but he doesn't make me feel bad. So I, I figured out, it's like, oh, people approach conversations in these two distinct ways, or there, there's a spectrum there. And there's a set of assumptions. And, and of course, so the pros and cons of the listeners who wait is the pro is that they're very good at making other people feel heard and understood. And they're very good at, uh, you know, truly listening <laughs> um, and showing that they're listening, you know, which you're very good at, Bob. Uh, the pitfall is that if you never initiate your own space and you never step into the room and say, I'm here, God damn it, then you run the risk of making other people feel like you don't care enough to enter the room. You know? I do know. I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing that right now. Not, yeah. not between us right now, but in general in my life. Yeah. Yeah. It can feel like... A rejection, you know, even yes. though you're not meaning it to be, it feels like, you know, yeah. <laughs> do you care enough to get energetic and, and, and want to share, you know, yeah. to the yeah. point where I don't have to ask it. You just are like, Hey, I got to tell you something, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Colleen likes it when I uh, have moments like that. She, she enjoys me. And I think that when I, when I'm being the listener who waits, and maybe it's not even a binary thing. Maybe there are degrees of that. Maybe there's more or less waiting. Um, I think it probably does have an impact on her that feels like rejection, that she can only interpret as a kind of rejection, um, whereas I'm most likely either ashamed or nervous. But how could she not interpret it that way? I mean, who wouldn't, right? Well, well, listeners who wait wouldn't. <laughs> listeners who relate uh interpret it that way right yeah, yeah. listeners who wait would be like uh refreshed that um you're waiting i don't know um well we have to adjourn but yeah wow what a rich one yeah uh i'm glad we talked about this and i appreciate bob your care and being impacted by this um and in a sense, you know, for me, what I've sort of absorbed today is, you know, when I would feel guilty and I, I'd be yammering and I'd be like, oh, crap, what's happening? Uh, he hasn't, you know, because normally I'd be like, well, eventually he's going to interrupt me or something. You know? <laughs> and, and then I'd, and I'd be like, oh, you're doing it again. But I will say that I never worried that you thought ill of me or that you didn't want to be with me. I mean, we've been uh, together long enough where mm -hmm. I just know like, well, it's, it's going to have to be a pretty bad event for Bob and I to have mm -hmm. some kind of negative downturn in our relationship. So, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, when I said, you know, I was, I was like, yeah, probably every time I talk to you, maybe not every time, but frequently, okay. mm -hmm. um, I feel a little bit of guilt, you know, that impacted you emotionally. And yeah, you know, that's um, refreshing to feel that or to see or experience that anyone, including, you know, a good friend like you in my life, is like, oh, that's surprising. And, oh, that makes me sad that our interactions make you feel something negative, guilty, you know. Yeah, um, it does make me sad. Like, I don't want you to feel... <laughs> that that feeling i don't 
And, uh, you know, it's really meaningful to me. It's happening again. I'm feeling it again. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want you to worry about it, truly. Um, no. I might worry a little bit. I think I'm mostly probably like a two as opposed to a an eight or a ten. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it, it affects no kind of yeah. overall feeling I have yeah. about our relationship or – yeah. Um, it it'll make me feel more guilty if you're. <laughs> oh no no! I'm, just like you, I'm not going to lose sleep. But okay. um, it's nice to have this awareness, and I really have appreciated uh, yeah. you talking about it, and in particular, talk, actually, you know, it's funny when I think about you these days, the last say three years. One of the things I have so much enjoyed is how articulate you are about matters psychologic. Like, like today, like you just talking about, let's see, I can't remember, I can't remember anything that the emails that we, you know, that just can't do it right this second. But, but, but you have a lot of really interesting, art, um, important, useful things to say. And you say it in a way that's really clear, straightforward, matter of fact, and easy to understand. Like, I really, I enjoy our podcast in part because, you know, we get to hang out and in part because I actually do like talking. And and I I live for the emails we get when people say, well, that one really blah 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 blah. Like I I'll several times a week I'll go and I'll see, did anybody make a comment about this one, that one, you know? Because I really do like um and I I love that, and I really love listening to you. I really and I've really been enjoying the podcast that I'm listening to. You know the the deep dive, mm. just listening to you and hearing what you got to say is really it's been so fun and cool. Mm. Well, I mean, it makes it feel nice. And everyone out there, if you want to make Bob's day, email uh, us, go to our website, click on the contact, email us through that form, and say, I would like to sell Bob something, and then Stacy will forward it to Bob. Yeah. Uh, that's the the best way that you can get something to him. Or you could send a message through Patreon and... Mm-hmm. Stacy can just forward that uh, email notification directly to Bob as well. Um, if you comment other places, uh, Bob's mostly a Luddite and, you know, doesn't know where to look. You know, because people, people will Instagram us and, you know, direct message us. I and, know what that is. Yeah. yeah. So uh, use the contact page on Psychology in Seattle and or, I guess, Patreon message directly to us and we'll forward it to Bob. And Bob really does read those if you've already sent one and and he very much takes it to heart he's not one of those people that's just like oh yeah interesting anyway like he he, you know he really he'll respond back to me and he'll just be like whoa like that person said this and that and and, you know save them all they're all in a file in my email yeah yeah Yeah. i mean you know it's weird but doing this provides a tremendous amount of meaning you know you and I aren't just yammering into a microphone uh, purely for our own narcissism. Um, <laughs> also for a weird relationship with people, you know, yeah. where we don't necessarily know who they are. We don't necessarily see them. Um, but we have have a, a weird contact, yeah. you know, and a, a definite impact on each other. Yeah, and right. And so, uh, you know feel free to and please email email bob directly and as always please take care of yourself because you deserve it 
Why yes, should they take? <laughs> <laughs> I always screw this up at the end. Uh, <laughs> take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.